Yo, 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 it's your girl and boy CT. I'm Cindy Barnes. And I'm Travis Barnes. And we are the founders of the Overcomers Podcast. Sponsored by Journey 333. That is a place of mind, body, spirit that helps you with fitness, coaching, and nutrition to look better, live better, and feel better. We produce these episodes every week for your enjoyment to help people to overcome adversity and live their dreams. Yo, 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 it's your girl and boy CT. I'm Cindy Barnes. And I'm Travis Barnes. And we're the founders of the Overcomers Podcast. The Overcomers Podcast is sponsored by Journey 333. Now that's a place of mind, body, spirit, fitness, coaching, and nutrition where we help you to look better, live better, and feel better. And speaking of mind, which was the first part of those threes, mind, body, spirit, today we got Mark Hennick in the house. Now he is an author of a recently released book, in, in uh, 2021, Mark released a book, So-Called Normal, So-Called Normal. I just can't wait for him to share with you uh, what this book is really all about is overcoming depression. Uh, it says depression and resilience, right, that you can overcome. Mark has had a couple of achievements, and I want to tell you why you should listen to Mark today. Uh, mental health, he was the youngest ever board director for the Mental Health Commission of Canada, youngest president of Provincial Canadian Mental Health Association. So Mark's had some major roles in helping to uh, shape mental health and the, the support that we get. And so I'm just super excited to have Mark on the show today for all that he's about to share. Mark, thank you for making time. Welcome to the show. Thank you both so much for having me. Yeah, ah, awesome. well, I've been excited ever since watching that keynote. He did a TED Talk. Um, He's a sought-after keynote speaker. Uh, there's a lot of different places that you'll be able to find Mark on the internet and watch some of his videos after today if you want more of Mark. But uh, yeah, go ahead, Cindy, yeah. kick us off. So, Mark, you you were telling us before we uh, started the show that you are your own case study. So tell us a little bit about that. I guess that would, would take us back to the beginning. Yeah, well, this is it. I mean, I've been sharing my story now for almost 20 years, and it's it, the whole purpose behind it, the whole point uh, is to show that you can struggle uh, through, even in my case, quite severe circumstances and still come out okay on the other side. You know, and in my case, uh, I was first uh, noticed to be suicidal when I was only 12 years old. That's when I was, when, that's when I first uh, went to hospital, was brought to hospital uh, for expressing suicidal ideation. Uh, but really, I think I'd been struggling with it even well before that, you know, so when kids especially become suicidal, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, there's often a lot of other things happening in their life. And in my case, I mean, maybe I had a genetic predisposition, predisposition to it anyway, um, but there was a lot going on in my environment as well. My dad left when I was very young. Uh, my mother, sister, and brother and I moved into an environment that was emotionally abusive and unpredictable all the time. Uh, I was uh, leaving home with my mother, you know, a dozen times and we always went back and I never understood why. So I felt like as a young man, I didn't have that secure base, that firm footing to really uh, feel safety in my life, to feel a good attachment, a secure attachment to the people in my life. And as a result, I, I started to mistrust myself and I felt unsafe in my own mind uh, from a very early age. So I think that's partly what informed uh, what later was diagnosed as major depressive disorder, as social anxiety disorder, and uh, ultimately, uh, as I started to become suicidal and bounce around in a healthcare system that didn't know what to do with me. Wow, that is uh, really impressive. As you spoke about nature and nurture there, that's what I kind of categorize. Mm -hmm. You know, you, 
you mentioned having a genetic deep uh, disposition, uh, maybe, uh, you know, something going on there, but also, you know, just the environment. So how much do you think both contribute? I mean, would you say it's like 50-50? Would you say that, you know, I mean, because, you know, this is going to hit home with, uh, I think we all know someone in our life that struggles emotionally. There's a lot of bipolar. There's a lot of social anxiety today. There's a lot of depression today. So more than likely, every listener is going to know somebody that they'd like to kind of figure out where it all came from and, and, and how they can help. So um, how much do you think is nature? How much do you think is nurture? Yeah, you know, I think the two have to go together. You can't talk about one without the other. Uh, and that's because we're not just a, a genome in a test tube. We're not a brain in a jar. Uh, that your, your genetic makeup doesn't make any sense outside of your environment. Uh, so uh, that's why I like to think of it as nature through nurture, uh, that we bring our nature into everything that we do. We, we have a body, of course. We have a brain and a genetic makeup and a genetic history. Uh, but lots of people have genes that place them at risk for all sorts of things. Those genes may or may not ever be turned on. They may not ever be activated. Some are actively suppressed. Our genome changes, in fact, uh, even throughout our, our uh, life, potentially. Um, so our environment and our environmental conditions are vital uh, for, for shaping who we become. Uh, and we see people who have uh, all sorts of risk factors or protective factors uh, that may enter into uh, uh, thriving situations or into high risk situations and are shaped by those. So I think for me, uh, my, my environment was uh, certainly uh, what shaped me and not having that predictability and that secure base, uh, not having a, why well, I called the book so-called normal, because I thought my environment was normal. Of course, that's, a, that's how it was for everybody. Everybody came from a broken home where I was from, it seemed. Uh, so that was normal. And you get used to it. And this is what I, I try to tell people is that um, to a certain degree, depression is an entirely adaptive response to abnormal circumstances. Your mind is trying to keep you safe. It's trying to protect you. Now, the way that it does that is maladaptive, of course. It blocks things out. It numbs you. Uh, it makes you think uh, that, that uh, you need to die. And in fact, you don't. That's depression lying to you, of course, but you don't know that because it lies to you in your own voice. It lies to you in your own head. Uh, so, And that's the only reality that you know. And I think that was fundamentally shaped by my environment because we didn't have those kinds of conversations. We didn't talk about mental health. We didn't, especially as a young man, as a young boy, we didn't talk about how we were feeling. You know, we were just expected, I was told, to be a man, to suck it up. You know, boys don't cry, all this stuff. And it, it, of course, uh, I think we've seen time and time again that if you push your feelings away and don't deal with them, they don't actually disappear. They just come back up in other ways. Yeah. Oh, I Go wanted ahead. to ask, um, I wanted to ask you a question. You said something right at the beginning that even with your circumstances, you know, your mom taking you and your siblings out of the house and bringing you back um, uneasy home environment. You said something that was interesting to me that I had really never heard before. So I've been pondering it ever since I, you said you began to not trust yourself. Mm. So can you, I don't really, you know, I, I, because depression does hit home with us. Um, sure. We have a daughter that is, has struggled with it um, literally since about 12 years old. And um, 
suicidal attempts and different things like that. And so I always keep feeling like if there, that there's something I can do maybe that help, will help her feel more comfortable, more trusting, more, you know, like, so we always try for stability, stability. Mm-hmm. But I'm, when you said that, I'm, I'm thinking, and now I've heard her say stuff about her not trusting her own self. And mm-hmm. so I was like, wow, because I, I have never really thought about that. So can you just kind of, for me, or maybe someone that's listening, um, kind of explain what that means? Like, what Yeah, well, I, I think that there's a few ways that this manifests, both in people with depression and people without, but I, I think certainly in people with depression, um, where uh, if you have an insecure attachment with the people around you from a young age, for example, if you've had people coming in and out of your life, or if you've moved around a lot, or if you experienced really uncertain environments uh, growing up, Uh, you start to learn that you can't trust the way things currently are, that they're going to stay this way. Um, So you start to do things to to protect yourself against that. What I mean by that, or to give a practical example of that, um, I don't know if this person who is entering my life today is going to be here tomorrow, or I don't know if this person who is nice to me right now is going to be mean to me later or potentially even hurt me later. Um, So you start to develop this feeling of insecurity in every Uh, every environment that you go into uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, And then what you start to do, I think anyway, is that it makes it very difficult uh, to reach out for help if you're struggling. You know, for example, I would, um, if I was feeling powerful emotions as a, as a young boy, and if I told my stepfather that, or if he saw me cry, or if he saw me having a hard time, the response that I would get from that in a, in a very, you know, basic kind of conditioning uh, sense was very negative, you know, to make me feel shame, to make me feel afraid, to make me feel silly or stupid uh, or weak uh, for having those kinds of feelings. Therefore, I would know I can't, I can't share those feelings again, because I can't trust that this is a safe environment uh, to do that. Uh, then, of course, you stuff all those feelings inside and don't express them. And then that has a, a negative uh, uh, outcome later on because you never learned how to deal with your feelings. Uh, later on in the struggle with uh, depression, I think you learn to mistrust uh, your thoughts and your feelings. You know, you, you want to be hopeful, uh, but you also don't want to be hopeful. So there's this ambivalence that comes in because, you know, if I get hopeful, then I'm just going to get let down. If I, if I think I can do it and then fail, I don't think I can handle that. So we don't try, right? Because we don't want to fail anymore. Um, we don't want to scare people away from us. So we don't open up about our struggles. So it becomes this tug of war inside you all the time, or at least inside me. And this is why I use myself as a case study, because I can only speak to my own, own experience. It, I've learned over the years that my experience, it turns out, is very similar uh, to what other people experience as well, but I can only re- really speak to my own. And, and I think people who struggle with their mental health, uh, as I did, uh, experience this tug of war inside them all the time, and they don't know if they can trust themselves uh, or other people around them. Mm, that's really good. Let me ask you, you mentioned that your first, I believe you said your first suicide attempt was at 12 years old. Um, how many suicide attempts did you have? I, I remember seeing a little bit of, uh, in a video about that, but to share with our audience, if you would, as you went through your struggle of depression, just to kind of highlight some of the, uh, the uh, most traumatic things uh, about this depression, you know? Um, yeah. How many suicide attempts did you go through? So uh, many more, you know, I, 
uh, in the TED talk, I uh, give two stories uh, and I very intentionally told two stories. One of them was very early on in uh, when I was becoming suicidal. The other was and ended up being my final suicide attempt, because what I wanted to do in showing those two attempts was to show the progression from very early suicidality to late suicidality. In my case, um, in the book, I tracked um more than half a dozen attempts, actually, that I was in and out of hospital uh, every time. Uh, there were more than that, um, because not every attempt, not every I, um, what's called ideation uh, led to a hospitalization. But really, my objective in showing those points along the way in my story was to show that people aren't just born knowing how to kill themselves, <laughs> that this is something that we learn how to do, and that um, the more attempts that somebody has, they're, they're building this cognitive pathway, they're figuring it out as they go. And, the, and in my case, getting closer and closer to the literal edge, uh, the longer they bounce through a system that isn't helping. And that was certainly the case with me, you know, going into a hospital, uh, getting put on a variety of medications, cocktails of medications, being in a treatment environment that really didn't meet my needs. And this is still very common, in fact, in, in the medical system. Uh, and then being released back into a community, you know, I, I use the phrase in the book, uh, uh, nothing changes if nothing changes. Uh, you grew up the way that, or you became the way that you are in a particular environment. Why would you think that if you go back into that environment, you're going to be any different? Uh, so that was certainly the case for me. And I used those half a dozen um, hospitalizations through the story of the book to show that progression uh, in my case of getting worse and worse. Mm. Huh. So there was a final time. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm thinking that that might mark a bit of a shift for you. I, I'm very interested uh, for you to share with the audience, you know, what you think uh, about medications or what you think about, you know, the, the therapies that work for you or, or what created that shift from progressively uh, your attempts were, were getting, you know, closer and closer to hitting the mark. Let's just say that. Um, I don't know how else to put it. Uh, and then there's a shift that happens. So mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the path to getting well or the path to, you know, uh, healing, if you will? Yeah. For me, uh, I think people always, especially if you're struggling with a mental illness yourself, uh, you're always hoping and praying and, and wishing for the moment that you find the right medication or uh, the right therapist or the moment that everything just clicks into place for you. Uh, and uh, I, that didn't happen for me. Uh, and I don't know many people for whom that has happened either. But what did change for me, uh, I was able and I was only really able to trace this back many years later. I didn't know that it happened when it happened. Um, but for me, uh, I, I was 15 years old. This is the story that it, one of the, the two stories that I tell on the TED talk as well. I felt like because I'd been in and out of hospital more than half a dozen times, I was getting worse and worse. And it seemed like nothing would ever get better. And the, compounded by the fact that by this point, I grew up in a small town on the East Coast uh, of Canada. And like any other small town, people talk, right? Everybody knows everybody and they, everybody knows each other's stories. Uh, and in particular, uh, the bad 
stuff or the so-called bad stuff uh, about people, the struggles that they've been through. And in the case of mental health, nobody was really talking about it to you, but they were talking about it about you <laughs> to each other. Uh, so I felt very um, confined uh, to this place of being this crazy kid, the mentally ill kid who, you know, according to TV and newspapers was probably going to grow up to be an axe murderer or, you know, something that you see on Law and Order, uh, because this is the portrayal of the mentally ill in the singular uh, to be these scary, violent people, despite, of course, the fact that this has been researched over and over and over again. And that's not an accurate portrayal of people with mental illnesses, but it's what people believe. So I didn't want to be trapped uh, in my own mind in this head that was torturing me. I didn't want to be trapped in that identity that society had built for me to tell me who I was. Uh, and I didn't want to be trapped in that place anymore. You know, that very, in some ways, normal uh, teenage uh, angst uh, of being trapped in this in this place that I, I felt like I had no opportunity and that really quite literally didn't have any opportunity. Um, so I had had come to this place where I had I use this image in the TED talk of this perceptual collapse. I collapsed into this small, tight, dark place in my own mind that I felt like I couldn't get out of and that I had no choice except to end my life. Uh, and I, I asked the question, you know, it, it can suicide really be a choice? Can it be a free choice is what I meant uh, if we feel like we have no other choice, if we can't see any other options because of what our mind, the blinders that our mind is putting on us. Um, so I had gotten to that place and I went to this bridge in my hometown uh, that stretched over an abandoned steel plant. And I went to that place because this steel plant used to be, you know, during my parents' generation and grandparents' generation, it used to be the lifeblood of my hometown. It used to provide vitality and income and meaning and hard work and all these great things, multiculturalism. Um, and here it was abandoned and, and alone. And it was, it was one of the worst toxic waste sites in North America, in fact. And I felt like I didn't have any people in my life who really understood that that's how I felt inside. But this place got that in me. So I, th I think that's why I went to that bridge overlooking that, that abandoned steel plant. And when I went there, it was part of a plan that by this point, because I'd been dealing with this for years, that was well articulated and well laid out in my mind. Uh, I climbed up over the railing and I stood on about an inch and a half or so of concrete, uh, ready and fully intending uh, to end my life. I felt like that I didn't want to I didn't want to kill myself just for the sake of killing myself. That was never the point It's that I felt like I couldn't live the way that I was currently living. And I had no other skills or idea of how to not live that way. I felt like this was my only choice. And I would have uh, done it had it not been uh, for a complete stranger who stopped. This was late at night on a Sunday night in March, uh, almost midnight. This stranger stops and he approaches me. Um, all I could see that it, uh, over this over my shoulder, because I was on the wrong side of the railing, was that he was wearing a light brown jacket at the time. And he talked to me. And what I remember from what he said to me, although I was so closed down in my mind, I, I couldn't hear or remember much. But what I do remember was that he didn't sound like a professional. He didn't sound like a psychiatrist or psychologist or social worker or many one of the dozens and dozens of uh, medical professionals that I'd talked to over the years. Uh, the people who I felt saw me as a, a frequent flyer of the mental health care system, you know, somebody who the more help they need, the less help they get. Uh, that's that's how I felt. But he didn't treat me that way. He didn't ask me about my medications or my therapies or my hospitalizations or any of that stuff. Um, 
that I felt others were making me feel like I was broken, like I was just a broken down car on the side of the road or the problem that was Mark and they needed to fix me. Right. He just treated me like he talked to me like a person, just like another person you would run into on the street. He asked me about my family and my friends. If I had any pets, he asked me if I, what my hobbies were, what I was passionate about. He asked me what I was good at, not what I was struggling with, what I was good at. And that was just one of those fundamental shifts in the conversation that for me was so rare because everybody else talked to me about all the problems that I noticed it right away. And then as he talked to me, I could feel that that perceptual collapse, that tightness in my mind around me start to dissipate a little and relax. And it, it started to breathe some more expansiveness into my mind so that I could actually see, physically see a little bit more of what was going on around me. And that's when I realized that the, the police had arrived and they had set up barricades, uh, wooden sawhorse barricades on either side of the bridge to cordon off the area. The crowds had gathered. You know, I grew up in a small town where everybody listens to the police scanner to see if there's anything interesting happening with their neighbors. Right. So I think they all heard, even though it's midnight, practically by this point. And so many, like dozens and dozens of people came out to watch me. Um, and one person on the sidelines at the barricade, a young man shouted out for me to jump and he called me a coward. And when he did that, because I was, I mean, physically on the edge, but I was on the, the edge in my mind, too, by this point, because this this other stranger over my shoulder who was talking to me, kind of loosening me up and edging me back in some ways, uh, I was very ambivalent. I was on this edge in my mind, too, between do I actually want to do this or not? But when that guy on the sidelines shouted out and called me a coward, that's I mean, it, it it's what reminded me of why I was there in the first place. I didn't want to be part of that kind of world, that kind of insensitivity. And I let go of the railing and started to fall. And that's when the stranger in the light brown jacket who was behind me uh, reached out and grabbed me, saved my life, uh, and uh, loaded me into the, am the ambulance that was waiting behind me. And I didn't realize, I didn't know at the time that that was going to be my last suicide attempt. Uh, but more than a dozen years later, <laughs> when I reflected back on that moment, I realized that what changed for me in some ways was that I was left with this image of these two men who were watching the exact same situation unfold in front of them, but each had a very different response to that same situation. Uh, one chose to stand on the sidelines and to be insensitive and shout out and, and push me over uh, with his words. And the other chose literally to have my back and to reach out and to save my life. Uh, and I realized, I think, in that moment that I had more choice in my life than I thought that I had. And I could choose which of those two strangers I wanted to be like. I could be like the stranger in the light brown jacket who reached out and saved my life. So that's what I've been doing ever since. That man not only saved my life in that moment, he, in fact, has been my role model for who I want to be uh, for my entire life. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Wow, that's... Uh... That's so inspiring to think, you know, about the, you know, how we use our words, the choices we make to be cruel or to be kind, you know, how, how life-saving it can be. And that was actually going to be one of my questions. Um, you know, Cindy was already vulnerable on the show to, to share that we do have someone in our lives, our daughter that's struggled. And um, my question to you was going to be how you think that people can help, right? And, uh, you know, you grew up in this, um, uh, I think you called it emotionally insecure environment, right? Because you just couldn't really trust it. And uh, certainly um, when you have someone that you love in your life, which I'm thinking that the listeners are identifying and that they probably have that person that they love in their life. And, 
And if you're close enough to that person, you feel like, well, what role did I play uh, in turning on that gene factor, you know, that, that depression factor that now has led to all these different things. And um, if, the, if you could, of course, you know, seeing the pain that they go through, you know, you'd love to be able to fix it. You know, you, you know, you'd love to be able to take away that pain or, <laughs> you know, see what you could do. Maybe have some recommendations on that, because there are two types of people that you just described. Early on in the show, you began with the environment that you're in. I mean, how much of a, what could the people that were in that environment, you know, the stepfather that, uh, you know, made things that was either cruel or, you know, made you feel embarrassed or shameful about, you know, just the ways you're acting. You know, what could the people that were closest to you have done to to make for more of a healing path in your life, I guess, if I yeah. yeah, you know, I, I think the first step, whether you're trying to help somebody else or you're trying to help yourself, the first step is always noticing what's happening currently. I think so many of us just move through our lives on autopilot that we actually don't uh, realize the way that we're speaking to other people or the way that we're behaving, how our moods are impacting other people. Yes, of course, we all have uh, a range of emotions and behaviors and reactions, and that's normal. We're supposed to. But we also need to appreciate how, uh, how interconnected we all are and how our moods uh, and uh, how we react to situations impacts other people around us. Everybody's got their own stuff, right? And everybody, everybody is having a hard time. Uh, but I think parents in particular need to be conscious of uh, how their kids are observing that and whether they're taking it out on their kids. So, you know, I'm a parent now. Uh, I have three little kids and uh, paying attention to my own emotional states, knowing that they're always watching uh, is always in the front of my mind now. And I think it's partly because I'm hypersensitive to it because I lived with people who didn't do that, uh, who were just always uh, um, so emotionally uh, uh, uncontrolled in some ways, I think. So that's the first step is noticing your own own emotions in the moment uh, and how you're expressing them. And then, you know, what you need to do to express them in a more healthy way. Uh, the next step, I think, is having conversations, having doing something active, wherein, you know, everybody makes mistakes. You, we're, we try to be good enough parents. We try to be good enough people. But of course, we, you know, we're all just stumbling along here in many ways. So then what? What do we do then? Do we just leave it go and leave it turn into something that is unspoken and unsaid and then festers? Or do we actually deal with it? Do we have the kinds of conversations with, say, we notice somebody else is struggling, a young person or a person of any age? Hey, I noticed that you seem like you're going through a really hard time. I noticed that you said this thing that is really concerning. You've been talking about killing yourself, for example, or you've been talking about how you think that nobody loves you. Um, these are all things that when you're paying attention, when you're, when you're actively noticing, you notice these data points that gives you material to talk about. Um, now, you know, that person might not want to talk to you about it. That's okay. You know, that, that could mean a lot of things. They're just not in a good headspace. It could mean that that relationship isn't that kind of relationship yet uh, where they feel comfortable talking openly about it, but that's okay too. We still have to make those um, efforts to start those conversations. But then I think, and this is particularly relevant for parents in particular, um, realizing two things. One, that your child isn't you. <laughs> They're not inside you anymore. They don't have your brain. Uh, they have their own brain. They have their own thoughts, their own genes, their own experiences and life. They have their own minds. They're separate from you. Uh, so they are going to have experiences that might be entirely foreign from you that you might not understand. 
that's okay. We can leave that that um, uncertain space. We don't got to figure them out. We have to be there to support them. Uh, so that's where I think the next step comes in. It's, it's so easy to fall into this, what I call fixer fixation, where we want to fix somebody else's problems. And the more you love somebody, the more you want to do this. You want to make their life better. You want to remove all the pain. You want to remove all the struggle. Kids are hardwired for struggle. We have to struggle, actually, in fact. That's how we build resilience. You don't build resilience by laying around in bed and having everything easy all the time. I was raised, raised Irish Catholic. I don't know if this makes any sense to you or not, but you learn from a very young age as an Irish Catholic that life is hard. You just grit it out and it, may, it builds character and all this stuff. I'm not saying that's a good way to be raised, but it's the way I was raised. Um, but I think there is a, a kernel of truth to that, that you do need to, to learn how to struggle well. And the way that you learn how to struggle well uh, is that when you go through hard times, you have somebody at your back, who's willing to coach you through it and support you through it and um, be your soft place to land. You don't need somebody. I, we don't need somebody as people who struggle with mental illnesses for somebody else to solve all our problems for us. That's not what we want. We want to know that there's somebody there uh, who will support us and who will be in our corner when we need it. So I think that's the best thing that uh, parents can do for their kids. Uh, I think it's the best thing that partners can do for their spouses, uh, for coworkers can do for each other. Uh, knowing that we have uh, a tribe, a team of people behind us uh, helps to reduce that isolation and it helps us to cope on our own, which is always the goal. Very good. Very good. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <clears throat> I was going to just share a story with you. Um, so when our daughter was younger, um, I've learned obviously through time, but I've never had depression. I, I didn't know anyone, like no one in my immediate family ever had it. So when our daughter started showing different signs and stuff, it had gone on for quite some time. And I remember one day I said to her, I don't really understand why you're depressed. You have absolutely no reason to be depressed. We live in a beautiful house. You have everything you want. Your parents are together. You're not abused. Like, I don't understand. And she looked me square in the face and she said, I hope that you wake up tomorrow with depression. She said, it's just like people that have cancer. They don't choose it. It chooses them. And depression chose me. And I hope it chooses you so you can understand what I'm feeling. Mm. And that was like huge for me. Um, then I started trying to read books on it and really understanding it. And I talked with her counselor and she's like, you don't ever say that to someone that, you know, like that. But good for you though. Things. Good for you for having that insight and, and being yeah, willing to learn. The yeah. thing that people that are depressed always hear from other people, right? Like, why are you depressed? You have no yeah. reason. And so when she said that to me, that depression is like, like cancer, people don't choose to have cancer. She said, and I hope you wake up with depression tomorrow. And I was like, whoa. That was what a powerful insight. And, and what I really like about this, too, is that this is very, very common, of course. You know, what do you have to be depressed about? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, being down when things are hard isn't depression. That's that's normal. That's of course, you're down when things are hard. It's being down when you have no reason. That's almost the definition of depression in some ways, uh, that it's a that it's an asynchrony or it's a it, it's a it's disparate from the situation around you in some ways. Now, that said, there are ways there are things that we absolutely can do. You, 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 uh, your depression isn't your fault, 
but your recovery is your responsibility. Uh, and there are things that you actively have to do uh, in order to help yourself, that you are not a slave to your brain, uh, that you are not, uh, you, it, as soon as you fall into a victim mentality that you are subject to your illness, uh, then it makes it much more difficult to recover. Uh, so you absolutely have to have self-efficacy. You have to do the work. You're the only person that can recover from your depression. And I've seen this as a counselor. I've I experienced this as a person with depression, but I saw it as a, as a mental health counselor over and over again, uh, that the people who wait for somebody else to fix them, uh, to wait for the, to find the right medication or the right therapist, they're the ones who, who struggle the longest. Uh, but the people who really start to take charge and they realize, you know, I might not be able to fix myself, whatever that even means. I don't even know what that means, but, uh, but I can do things uh, that make this less hard, that make this less challenging for me. So I, I think that that's really the goal of effective recovery and, and effective therapy is to show people who have these illnesses that there are lots of things you can do uh, to make it less difficult on yourself. Yeah, and that was actually where I was going to go with it, you know, because we've, we've definitely highlighted the, uh, the issues here a little bit. Um, I would just like to say, what is the way to, to help people, you know, what do you recommend uh, for treatment? Because you say there are ways to uh, essentially help yourself, um, you know, for somebody's listening and they either have depression themselves or, or they're struggling or they know somebody that's had suicide attempts or is even self-harming, uh, you know, those kind of things uh, all kind of seem to go hand in hand. Uh, what do you recommend to, uh, to, you know, top recommendations, top three, top five, mm -hmm. or, or systematic plan here, you know? Yeah, so, so there are, I think, first of all, it's important to recognize that uh, depression, like all mental illnesses, these are heterogeneous uh, conditions, which means that they look different for everybody. You know, you can show me 10 different people, all with the exact same diagnosis of major depressive disorder, and they're going to show me 10 very different ways to be depressed. <laughs> you know, the, the, it's so highly dependent on your environment and your personal biological makeup. Um, that said, um, it, that also means that there's no right way or one way to recovery. I'm of the view that if something is working for you, that is awesome. Who am I to judge? You know, that, that there are so many people that are out, that are out there that'll say, um, you know, just get on meds and everything and you'll be okay. Or, or uh, make sure that you stay on your meds. That's sometimes a stigma too. Yes. Medication can be helpful. I eventually found a medication uh, that was helpful for me. Um, that said, medication isn't helpful for everybody. Um, you know, best case scenario, you're looking at about half of people, but even that is optimistic sometimes. Uh, and it's also very difficult sometimes to find the right medication. I went through a dozen different medications before I found one that worked for me. On the downside, there are some people for whom medication actually makes them worse. Um, it's a very common side effect, uh, particularly in young people, uh, that antidepressants will make them more suicidal. Um, so, you know, I think that we have to be very conscious of the fact that medication works for some people. For some people, it works miracles. But for many, many people, it either doesn't work at all or can cause really difficult uh, side effects. 
Um, that's why I think we also need to appreciate the fact that psychotherapy, evidence-based structured psychotherapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, uh, works just as well as, and in fact, sometimes even better than medication does uh, for the vast majority of common mental health problems like depression and anxiety. Now, if you're too depressed to get out of bed to go to see your therapist, <laughs> then you might need medication for that boost. Uh, and then you do the work with the therapist to ensure that it actually sticks. That's it's called combination therapy, and that's really the gold standard. Uh, that's where uh, you're addressing the physical symptoms uh, in a way that works for you. You're addressing the psychological stuff that's keeping you stuck. Um, and then also there are social supports, peer support, uh, getting uh, leading a physically active lifestyle and a healthy lifestyle. There are reams and reams of evidence to show that your diet, your, your physical activity levels, uh, your social engagement, if you're a part of social groups, whether it's religious affiliation or team uh, sports or something else, all of this stuff plays into your uh, mental health uh, as well. So that's why I always suggest it to people to take this uh, a holistic, what's called biopsychosocial approach, your biology, your psychology, and your social environment. If you tackle all three of those domains in a really conscious way and track it, track your progress, uh, then it makes recovery much less uh, scary, much less daunting, uh, because you realize that there are actually almost almost endless options to try. You will, just because you tried a medication and it didn't work, or just because you tried a half a dozen medications and they didn't work, that is one type of treatment. There are countless other kinds and, of treatments and, and routes to recovery. So uh, for me, uh, there's, there's never any lack of options for recovery. That is awesome. That is, I mean, the multi-pronged <clears throat> approach, biopsychosocial, getting physically active now you're speaking our language you know uh, the uh, the diet the nutrition you know what, what are you putting in your body you know certainly that affects a lot of our mood um we've been hangry at times and uh, <laughs> felt yeah. good well and this is you know certainly from a, a physical health um uh, perspective this makes sense but what you put in you get out right and the, but this also applies not only to your body that applies to your mind too what you feed your mind with the type and the tone of information that you feed into your mind that's of course what comes back out again so if you focus on developing po your positive mental health uh, you do things like mind Mindfulness meditation, for example, uh, or other types of, of uh, psychological intervention. This helps. If you surround yourself with a supportive social community rather than one that tears you down, what you put in, you get back out again. I have to ask you this. I, I've noticed, uh, especially nowadays where depression has just become, I don't know if it's more common, but it's definitely more, the information's out there now. You know, mm -hmm. kids get a cell phone and then they can learn so much so quick. Do you believe that uh, you mentioned social groups and how healthy they can be for somebody suffering with depression? Do you believe that the wrong social groups can be contagious? Uh, you know, if you're hanging out with depressed friends, do you believe that, uh, you know, somebody that's trying to find their identity in life, uh, an adolescent can determine that they're now depressed too because of their social group? You know, that's, that's a, a good question. I think though that there's, um, there's another layer of what's happening uh, in terms of those social groups. So short answer, I think there is some of that contagion factor that happens. That said, individuals are attracted to people that are like them. Uh, they would be attracted to a social group of people, maybe all the kids in that group are depressed because they feel depressed. 
You know, they're, that's why they're attracted. They wouldn't hang out with those people if they didn't feel that way. Uh, so I think that it goes both ways, that people clump together uh, with other people that they feel are like them. And then what happens in adolescence, of course, that people grow, they change, they try on new identities. That's the whole point of adolescence is I'm going to try on this if it's a goth identity for a while or a jock identity for a while or a, a nerd identity, a band kid, whatever. I did all of those. Uh, that's why I can speak to those. Uh, um, then that's okay. That's actually really normal. Do that. Try on these different identities. See what fits, what doesn't, um, what you grow out of, uh, and what seems to help. Because your, your adult identity, if any of us adults now look at who we are today, we realize that there are threads of each of those pieces. Um, it's very difficult to, to, uh, for people who are actively in the pit of depression to appreciate this, but there's actually a lot that I learned from my depression. I learned how to pay attention to my emotions. I learned how to be sensitive. Uh, I learned how to, to feel difficult feelings. You know, I actually uh, am grateful uh, in an odd way for a number of the things that I learned from my depression. Um, and it makes happiness and joy all that much sweeter when you know intimately the opposite. Uh, so there are there are good things that can come from all of these experiences. And I think when you mature and you get to a place where, uh, like a fine wine, all of these separate elements of that you experience during uh, adolescence, they all kind of gel together and they meld together and, and become something really interesting and beautiful. So, you know, I, I think that there is uh, certainly a um, reciprocity that happens in social groups, but you won't catch depression from your friends. Don't worry about that. Uh, I think that they're providing you a support system uh, that, that maybe you need at that time. That's good. That's good. I just think that it, I like your social groups, you know, definitely try to find people that uh, can lift you up, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, really important bio psycho social you just gave some great recommendations um anything else i definitely want i definitely want people to be able to follow you and connect with you but uh, you know any final message as well that you'd like the audience to uh, you know have as a takeaway from today well i think that uh, certainly i learned uh, as i went through all these struggles that there are times that you can't believe everything you think you can't trust everything you think. And sometimes that's perfectly healthy and normal. Uh, so when you're feeling these really strong emotions, that's the worst time to be making big life decisions for any reason. You know, if you're really hangry, uh, probably, you know, the worst time to go to the grocery store is when you're angry. Uh, the, the worst time to make uh, big life decisions, uh, you know, about your relationship is when you're in the middle of a fight. Let it breathe. Give it some space. Give it some air. Don't believe everything you think. Your thoughts are data points. Your feelings is just in, they're just information. It might just be a transient feeling. It might just be a transient thought that comes through your head. Uh, that's okay. You don't have to grab onto it and invest your entire life in that one thought or one feeling. Let it uh, become a, uh, into something else and, tr and watch your thoughts, watch your feelings. If you think you might be depressed, look at your life and look at your thoughts and feelings and, and situation over the last couple of weeks. Look for trends. That's what you're looking for. Um, so, you know, don't, don't uh, uh, cling too much to things as they currently are because the present moment changes. And we have no way of knowing if it's going to get better or maybe worse. That's okay too. We can, uh, when we know ourselves, then our situation, we become less tied up with our situation. We can watch it pass by, uh, not cling to it and therefore not be as 
uh, affected by it. So I think that's really how we uh, let go of the bad stuff, but it also helps us to practice more gratitude uh, for the good things in our lives as well, because nothing is permanent. Uh, therefore, uh, we, we can appreciate the good things in our lives so much more deeply, knowing that maybe they're not always going to be here with us today. And I, I think that's a really beautiful thing. That's really good. Let it breathe. Let it breathe. That's, that's the thing. We get so impulsive and we make rash decisions that are life-changing. Uh, if you can just slow down and let it breathe, that's a, that's a great takeaway for me. Uh, how do people learn more from you? How do people connect with you, follow you, anything that they can do? Of course, there's the book. Don't forget the book, folks, so-called normal. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you could give us a few ways that people can connect, learn more from you, whatever that might be. Sure. Well, I'm not hard to find. Um, my book, So-Called Normal, A Memoir of Family Depression and Resilience, uh, it's available now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, most other uh, bookstores across the U.S. and, in fact, around the world. Uh, my podcast, So-Called Normal, uh, as well as uh, Living Well, uh, where we have conversations with a variety of people about a, a range of issues related to mental health. One of my challenges to myself in those shows was that if you give me any issue, I don't even care what it is, you pull a topic out of a hat and I will find the way that it relates to mental Mental health, because everything relates to mental health in some ways. It's integrated into every part of our lives. Uh, so those two shows are out there. I'm also active uh, on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, YouTube, everywhere else, pretty much at Mark Hennick. That's at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. And my website is markhennick.com. That's awesome. Mark, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for what you've shared with us. It's definitely touched us personally, and I'm sure it has touched our listeners as well. Mm -hmm. So thank you for your time. Yeah, Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Overcomers Podcast sponsored by Journey 333. When I am not hosting the Overcomers Podcast, I am working at one of our fitness franchises so that I can continue to help people overcome adversity on a daily basis. That's right. People come to the Journey 333 fitness franchises because they want a coach in their life. They want somebody to help them overcome the adversities of life, motivate them to higher levels of greatness, bring out their potential, help them lose weight, get off medications fight depression, fight anxiety. That's what we do on a regular basis. If you feel like you want your life to be about helping more people to overcome their adversities, if you feel like you're an overcomer and you want to create more overcomers, then maybe owning a Journey 333 franchise would be for you. To find out more, go to www.journeyfitness333.com.